Madeline. Oh, what do you know? Just you coming up. I was struggling with this. I sat down and then I stood up and it ripped off and I thought, okay, if Poe and Kung Fu Panda's nemesis is stairs, mine is this thing. So, and breaking my nose. So, there you go. <laughs> well, again, good morning. Welcome. For those of you I don't know, my name is Deirdre Chance. I'm a part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church and uh, the elders invited me to come up and preach today. So I get to be with you this morning. Um, when I was preparing this sermon for today, it reminded me a lot of, um, I teach physical science intro to chem to uh, ninth graders. I've been doing that the last four years. And sometimes when I'm teaching something pretty basic um, in chemistry, one of my students will get really excited and will ask me, Questions like, well, and I was trying to think of a specific example, but maybe like the electron transfers from the metal to the nonmetal, and they're like, well, why? Why does that happen? And, you know, I try to give a quick blurb to just satisfy them and then move on because, quite frankly, the rest of the class is not that interested, and I will lose them all. Um, and, but they want to know more and more, and I think to myself, boy, I would have to give you a pretty good chunk of what I learned in inorganic college-level chemistry in order to answer your question because, and it's great, they're really interested, but it's just a small piece of a larger, deeper foundational principle. And that's what it reminded me of this morning, preparing for this sermon, that this piece on New Testament hospitality um, is just one piece of a larger, deeper foundational principle. I am glad there are study guides. Hopefully people are using those and enjoying those. Um, but really the larger, deeper foundational principle is living in the kingdom of God. That's the deeper one. And this aspect of New Testament hospitality, how Christ, as he ushered in the new covenant, covenant and called us to hospitality again, is just a bigger part of living in the kingdom of God. And it reminds me, if you've ever read any of Paul Tripp's books or his book on um, marriage called What Do You Expect? He has a chapter called Whose Kingdom? And I'd like to pose that same question to you today. Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom are you actually trying to advance? Are you trying to advance, we may say Jesus, <laughs> which is great, but we want to reflect on our lives too and think, when I look at my actions, what do my actions say? What do my actions say on whose kingdom I'm trying to advance? Am I trying to advance the kingdom of self? Or am I trying to advance the kingdom of God? And if we do want to try to advance Jesus's kingdom and the kingdom of God, what is that? What really is the kingdom of God? And so I do kind of want to take a little sidebar and just real quick go through some of the aspects of the kingdom of God, so we're kind of at least all starting on the same page. But the kingdom of God was first promised, um, well, right out in the garden in Genesis 3, but it was promised that it would be ushered in on earth by the Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, and Messiah, Christ, literally means the anointed one, but it can also mean uh, the promised, or maybe more fully it means, the promised one of God who was to be preeminent and altogether unique in the sense of 
the anointed, capital A, of God. Um, it was this idea of the Messiah bringing a kingdom was promised to David in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. Mary knew it and expected it when the angel appeared to her and said that the child that she would deliver, bring to the earth, deliver to the earth, um, would bring an eternal kingdom. She understood that. And, you know, we can see that for Luke to be inspired to record that as well, Luke's audience was also expecting the kingdom of God. Simeon, the man in the temple, when uh, Joseph and Mary presented Jesus when he was eight days old, um, was expecting the kingdom of God. Uh, in Luke 17.20, it clearly says the Pharisees were waiting for this kingdom of God. Uh, specifically, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council in Jerusalem, the one who took Jesus' body from the cross and laid it in a tomb that no one had ever been in before, specifically was looking and waiting for the kingdom of God. Um, and then Jesus describes the kingdom of God for us. He says things like, what is the kingdom of God, or to what will I compare it? And he says, it's like a mustard seed that you plant in a garden and grows a tree and is large and provides. So the kingdom of God is provisional. He also says that it is like a, that it's also like um, leaven. Woman puts a little bit of leaven or yeast in different piles of flour, and the yeast does its work of rising. So the kingdom of God is effective as well as provisional. Jesus also said that the kingdom of God is now near us. As he healed the sick and he cast out the demons, he said the kingdom of God is now near us. And he went on to even say that the kingdom of God is in your midst in Luke 17, 21. We're also told in the Gospels, actually by Jesus in the Beatitudes, that we should be filled up with the kingdom of God, where it says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We should be seeking to be filled with the kingdom of God rather than so many other things that we can seek after. Kingdom of God is also an already and not yet kingdom. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. And Jesus actually rebuked the idea that it was an immediate kingdom in Luke 19, 11. But God's kingdom will fully dwell on earth when Christ returns. And 2 Peter and Revelations tells us about that. And we're to be praying for the kingdom of God. You know, in the Lord's Prayer in Luke and in Matthew, it says, your kingdom come then Matthew adds on, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an ask, seek, and knock attitude that we should have for the kingdom of God. It says in Luke 13 about how much more the heavenly Father will give us the Holy Spirit when we ask for it, when we ask our heavenly Father for more of him, for more of his spirit. And the kingdom of God is among us and near us, and within us, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us as believers, for those of us who believe. And the Holy Spirit indwells us because Jesus Christ has come, 
and conquered the curse of sin and the power of sin and rose victorious over sin. And now we are a part of God's family. We have a part of God in us that makes us his family. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But sadly, too often, we don't live like we are part of God's family. Instead, we live like we're runaways. Choosing, instead of choosing to live as daughters and sons of the king, we choose to try to advance our own stuff. Trying to promote the kingdom of self and advance our own kingdom, our own agenda, rather than the kingdom of God. I can remember when I first became a believer. I became a believer when I was 19. And I got involved in a campus ministry. And sometimes when I would, um, I don't know, just be interacting with believers, I just, I don't know, I just got this hunch, this feeling like it just kind of seems like sometimes when the Christians are interacting, they just seem like they feel like they're missing out, like, yeah, I got to do this church thing, I got to do this Christian thing, but probably I'd be having a lot more fun if I could be doing something else over here. And I thought to myself, well, and actually part of my testimony was, I had all this good stuff in my life. Like when I was a college student, I had a 3.9 GPA and majoring in biochemistry and minoring in French, and I was in a sorority, and I had all this stuff that at that point in my life, the world seemed to be telling me that I should have, and I felt so empty and so meaningless. And I came to Christ and I'm like, this is where life is. This is where true life is. This is abundant life. And I get with some other people who know Jesus and they seem to be wanting to go back to the stuff that I'm just like, oh, that it literally would make me nauseous. I'd wake up Saturday mornings and just feel so empty and meaningless. I'm like, just more of this doesn't seem like it's any good. And too often we choose to to run away from the kingdom of God where abundant life is found and return to just meaninglessness. So what does it look like to be living in the kingdom of God? Well, one way is what Rebecca just read. By loving our enemies, by doing good to those who wrong us. But I do want to give a warning, because if you're like me, you might hear that, those scriptures, those words, and then feel like you've got to give to everybody who asks of you, and then be feel, filled with guilt if you don't go and do this, or do this, and do that, and you'll spin yourself in circles and drive yourself crazy and exhaust yourself. So it's not that. Jesus isn't saying that, because he even says to his own mom and brothers in the Gospels, when his mom and brothers, he's teaching his mom and brothers show up and they're like, hey, let Jesus know we're out here. And he's like, no, you know, these people, disciples of Christ, are my family. So applying Luke 6 and being hospitable and loving to our enemies doesn't mean we do whatever other people are going to demand of us. It means that we're going to follow God's Will. We're going to promote and advance and pray for the kingdom of God, and we're going to do what he calls us. And that doesn't mean everybody gets to demand and drain us. So we need to be careful in that. Another short, short warning. The kingdom of God also is not an automatic in. 
you're not in the kingdom of God just because of your heritage or your upbringing or your family. But we should be asking ourselves, okay, what are those concepts that were brought up in Luke 6? And the main concept is, do I only love those who I expect know are going to love me back and give back to me? Because that's just mutualism. That's just humanism. Even non-believers do that. If we're going to live out the kingdom of God, it's going to take the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to live out what Luke 6 says. It takes the indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit to be merciful to those who have wronged you. It takes the indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit to be inclusive to those who are different than you, who are strange to you, maybe because they're from a different culture, maybe they're from a different socioeconomic upbringing than you. Maybe they have different views, gone to different countries. Maybe they have different smells. But God doesn't call us to do something that he hasn't equipped us for. You're fully equipped. I'm fully equipped. Through that indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit. Just think for a moment of the last time somebody wronged you. I don't just mean like in traffic. Somebody you know. A friend. A family member. Maybe a coworker, A teammate. A neighbor. Think of the last time somebody seemed strange to you and you really didn't want to get close to them. What would it look like to be merciful to them? What would it look like to be merciful to them as your heavenly Father has been merciful to you? Tell you what it wouldn't look like. It wouldn't look like codependency. It wouldn't look like cutting them off. It wouldn't look like coldness or being distant. It wouldn't look like irritation and impatience. What would it look like for you to be merciful to them as your Heavenly Father has been merciful to you? To be kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That was that last line that Rebecca read. To extend warmth or acceptance to someone on the outside. I don't know, in my day-to-day life, if I'm honest, I think if you're honest, we don't even know how to do that to our spouse that we're married to, or our parents, or our kids, much less to an enemy who's wronged us. But I firmly believe if we're going to know and live and overflow mercy and kindness. We need to know God's mercy and kindness for ourselves. Because you can't give something to others that you don't know yourself. You know, and so I was thinking, okay, well, love, okay, how do we love others? And then I thought, 
I don't even think I'm a naturally loving person. And then the next thought that popped in my head, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I would have been a naturally loving person, but, you know, I can think of some painful things that happened to me, and I know the walls came up. So maybe I would have been naturally loving, but I had some of this pain, and now the walls are up, and now I don't know how to love. And then I thought, I think that's true for a lot of us. I don't think we know how to love. I don't think we know what love really is in this broken, fallen world that we walk around in, that we do to others and others do to us. But this is how we know what love is. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'd like to encourage you not to move too fast there. Be with God's love for you. It can get a little uncomfortable if we'll sit with God's love, if we'll be still with God's love. Because it starts off with while we were still sinners. Do you reflect on your own sins, your own transgressions, as much as you do others? Are you irritated by your spouses, but you kind of overlook your own? Are you irritated by your parents, but you kind of overlook your own? Or your friends, or your coworkers, or your church leaders, or your house church leaders, or your boss? Your sins. Sit there for a minute. Let God show you. Don't make excuses. Don't overcompensate. Don't busy yourself. Just let God show you and convict you of your sins, your self-absorption, your desire to get your own way, and if you kind of had to step on somebody else, short somebody else, your desire to be physically comfortable, be approved, successful, underlining your grand desire to just advance the kingdom of self where everything works out for you, where your wishes reign, where you don't really mind or notice if things don't fall into place for others. And on top of that, we've got our unintentional sins. The sin we didn't mean to do. Because I know the times where I have just been crushed and wailed and cried. Because I actually meant some of my actions for good to benefit somebody else. But I hurt them. And I can conclude I'm just evil. How can I do that? Or maybe you've joked around and you kind of just wanted this camaraderie with someone. But after you say something or you do something, you see the damage that you've done. Maybe you meant to do it, and then you see the damage afterwards, and you realize how bad it was. And some of us are pretty aware of our unintentional sins, or even our intentional sins of hurting others. Um, like Jake mentioned in the serving movement, we just finished up redemption. And there was um, 
a story, a testimony of a gal. I think her name was Brooke. And um, she wasn't she wasn't a real bad kid. She was kind of a little hyperactive. Um, but then I think maybe about the time she was 12, she stumbled upon some um, soft porn, I think maybe in her household. And then she started to act it out, kind of perpetrate against those younger than her. I don't know if it was her neighborhood or her family. And then by the time she hit 16, she just started to spiral out of control. So her parents sent her off to... Um, a residential boarding rehab place. And uh, there she heard stories of others, people who had been abused and raped, and then now they were acting out and perpetrating against others. And this gal said, I didn't have anything done against me. I just must be evil. And, um, you know, some of us are kind of falling into self-harm maybe cutting, maybe drinking, maybe using, because we, we sense that, that just in our human nature, we're evil. And we may conclude, oh, everybody else is different. They're not as bad as me. Or I've got some flaw, that something different that keeps me on the outside from everybody else and will put us in, ourselves in the category of outcast. And you're right. Our very nature... Our human nature is fundamentally flawed. We have this sinful nature. And what can we do with it? And I think the best theological line I ever heard concerning that, that helped me, from Chris Tomlin's song, Jesus Messiah, where it says, He became sin. He became my sin. He became my sin and took it on the cross, and the wrath of God was poured out on him for my sin, for your sin. If I'm going to have the courage to look at it full in the face, if you're going to have the courage to look at it full in the face, because that's what Jesus did. He looked it full in the face and took it fully on and took it to the cross so that God could pour out his wrath there, and we are now freed. He destroyed it. He conquered it. He rose above it, literally. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were evil, irritated, self-absorbed, insecure, deceitful, untruthful, tricking, taking, wanting more for ourselves, while we were strange, different to Jesus, foreign to Jesus, outside his kingdom, Jesus died for us because he loves us. And part of the problem to add to it all is we don't realize or we don't remember or we don't want to remember that we've all been the enemy. We've all been the foreigner or the outcast. And when we choose to forget, what we tend to do is we climb up on that judgment seat and we look down at everybody else and we condemn and we judge because they're different or we don't like what they're doing, all the while overlooking and excusing our own sins. And the really horrible thing is 
that judgment seat that we just climbed up on and are looking down at everybody else at, that's Christ's judgment seat. We just kicked out and rejected God and Christ so that we could climb up there just to flatter ourselves. We've all done it. We've all judged. We've all excused ourselves. We've all made ourselves standard. Our view, the view, our perspective, the perspective, our convictions, the right convictions. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies, sometimes full well, knowing better, Christ died for us because he loved us. We only love, know how to love, know what love is because he first loved us. We may think sometimes we know how to love, like when we're attracted to a person or dating that person or want to date that person, but that's just getting something in return for ourselves. So how can we possibly love the stranger and the enemy? When I accept that I was a stranger, that I was the enemy, and God pursued me and paid for me, way beyond any financial debt or any other legally binding things that I've ever experienced. He conquered those consequences, forgave me, and brought me close. When I let go of my kingdom and live in the kingdom of God as his daughter, as his son, as his child, that's when we promote and advance and bring near the kingdom of God by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to call us to something he hasn't equipped us for. For some of us, we know this. We've accepted that. But what we need to regularly do is just release our own kingdom. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, back in the day when there was the feudal system. And let's say a peasant who'd kind of be living in some pretty bad conditions, let's say they get brought into the kingdom, the protection of the fortress, of the castle, brought in near. But it's so easy to return to their native ways in their mindset and return to the slums of self-absorption. What we do, it just seems to be the downward part. But when we realize it, great, I'm in the slums again. <laughs> We can just confess it. Yeah, God, I'm in the slums again. And repent and return to his kingdom. He was merciful to us at the start. He's going to continue to be merciful to us because he can't deny who he is. And as we abide in the kingdom of God, where mercy reigns, we'll extend that mercy to others. It's part of who we are. And we don't have to live in that exhausting, life-sucking kingdom of self. We can live that abundant, high calling as ambassadors of Christ. I'm his daughter, son, child, and I represent him. His seal is on me, the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
And I would encourage you to pray and watch and see where is God calling you to maybe step out of your comfort zone and be merciful and be loving as love and mercy has been extended to you. Um, you know, I can think of how, I, I think it was about seven years ago, Seth Evans called me up and asked me, would you be willing to teach in the jails? I don't know why, but I thought, yeah, I, I think I can go out there and, and do that or go in there <laughs> and just spend some time with some ladies and love them and encourage them. And many others have joined me in the jail. Laura Hodges and Anna Butler and Katie Jakes and Pita Vanderbeek. And I know a lot of the men have gone into and many families too are uh, reaching out and showing love at Metro Hope and Healing House. The Halbergs are always an encouragement to me how they love their neighbors. They love well. And Nicole Spiegel, I think the other week she shared about how their house church um, just showed love to um, a Buddhist priest who was in need and needed some love and extension and warmth extended to him. You can't contrive that stuff, but when you know it, you extend it to others. But for some of us, for others, you can't extend love to the stranger or to the enemy because you never truly have experienced God's love and forgiveness for yourself. And for those, you need to reflect and you need to decide if Jesus Christ really did die and take on my sin and conquer death through resurrection, then that's something to believe in. If that's, you've got to decide, is that really true? And if it is, that's something to go all in for. He went all in for you. He didn't hold anything back. And he could demand your service, but instead he asks you, will you? Will you accept me? Will you accept your, my love for your sins? for your self-absorption, for your sinful ways. And then the last thing I just wanted to ask and put out there is, does it matter? If you're like me, sometimes I hear these things, and I'm like, eh, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I reach out and extend warmth and mercy to the stranger and those different than me and to those who have done me wrong? I mean, isn't it really the church leader's jobs? They can do it. No, no, it is not the church leader's job. The elders, their job is to protect sound doctrine and shepherd the church. And it's not the ministry team's job either. It actually says in Ephesians 4 that God has gifted and equipped some of the saints to build up the church. It says uh, to help equip the church for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each of you matter. Each of you have unique giftings and callings, and spheres of influence that God is calling you to do. 
Mike Wilkerson in the intro of his book, Redemption, reminds us that we cannot save. Only Jesus can save. We cannot solve. Sin's way too messy and entangling. We can't solve the problems of sin like some mathematical problem. Only the Holy Spirit knows and understands the condition of the human heart and is able to change the human condition. So we can't save and we can't solve, but we can serve. We're called to serve as the loving hands and body of Christ to tell in word and deed the great redemption story where the family members advance the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us.